You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week, my guest is Richard Florida. He's a university professor, director of cities at the Martin Prosperity Institute at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. He's a distinguished fellow at New York University's Shack Institute of Real Estate. He's the senior editor at The Atlantic and the co-founder and editor-at-large for the Atlantic City Lab. Of course, author of The Creative Class, founder of The Creative Class Group, his new book, which we're going to talk about today, is The New Urban Crisis, How Our Cities Are Increasing Inequality, Deepening Segregation, and Failing the Middle Class, and What We Can Do About It. Richard Florida, welcome to the Strong Downs Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me on. Um, and, and I'll let you know and everyone listening, I'm a big fan of what you do in the podcast. So it's, it's fantastic to be on with you. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. You know, I, I was in Seattle last week for the Congress for the New Urbanism. And I note your book is the new urban crisis, not the new urban crisis, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, they're all good friends. I read the creative class and I found it incredibly insightful and helpful, but there was this backlash from urban advocates. And as being someone from a smaller town in central Minnesota, I, I never understood the backlash. Hearing you talk now about your new book and listening with fresh ears, I'm kind of maybe starting to understand a little bit. Can you just for background, what are the lessons of the creative class that you would want people to take away today as kind of a starting point for entering your new book. Of course, as the author of Rise of the Creative Class, I, n I never understood the backlash either. <laughs> I thought I got everything right. So, of course. <laughs> um, um, there is criticism and then there is kind of um, ad hominem and personal attacks. And I guess, I guess as you become a public figure, all of us, all of us as that happens become victim of that. So I, I think a couple things happen. One, I think for those people who were legitimate critics, um, not not kind of knee jerk making silly arguments, but but people who were legitimately and constructively critical. And, and you know, I would say people like Ed Glazer at, at Harvard, who actually just gave the new book a rave review in The Wall Street Journal, um, even Joel Kotkin, someone who I've had many, many very significant, sometimes very difficult debates with. Um, but people who are, are in this field of urbanism, not people from the outside just throwing hand grenades. I think there were, were some interesting criticisms, but I think really what happened is the world changed and the, the urban revival, you know, if, if anything, I think with rise of the creative class, I underpredicted the extent of the urban revival and just how uneven it would be. You know, in many ways, the, the rise of the creative class was really about why we should celebrate the urban revival, why it was happening. And remember, at that time, most people didn't believe there was an urban revival. Most people didn't believe these creative types, I mean, outside for artists and, and bohemian types, were li living in cities. They certainly didn't think tech companies would come back to cities. That's ludicrous. That's heretical. Wealthier people, people with families would would en masse. And so I think it was one 
kind of making the case to mayors, to economic development leaders, to leaders of the arts and cultural community, know that this thing was real. And the second part of that book was really about, you mentioned coming from a smaller town in Minnesota, it really was a plea with places like my hometown at the time, like Pittsburgh or Cleveland, or you could go on and on, Detroit, you know, get with it, wake up the places that are attracting this group of very mobile, very talented people who are helping to drive, do startup companies, very, very innovative, create economic growth. Um, you have all the assets. You have great old buildings. You have spectacular neighborhoods. You have beautiful parks. You have all of these things that those folks want. You just have to position yourself in that space and improve your what I call a people climate. And invest in your quality of place. Stop building casinos and convention centers and spending hundreds of millions or billions of dollars on stadiums. That's not what's going to revive your city. So that was the message of that book. And, and, and you know, as early as 2003, you know, people forget this. But as early as 2003, I wrote an essay in the Washington Monthly. Um, which is available on my website, where where I showed pretty conclusively, you know, that the places that had the most robust creative and innovative economies that scored highly on my own metrics were also the most unequal, you know, so San Francisco, San Jose, Austin, New York, I could go on, Boston, D.C., were were very creative and very unequal at the same time. I was still optimistic that the urban revival would ultimately cause you know second and third tier cities to come back it would take the pressure off these real estate markets and the superstar cities and it really was you know i'd say this in the book it really was the rise of rob ford in toronto the backlash that that propelled the kind of the original populist the guy before trump that was my real wake-up call if if a progressive tolerant city with a social safety net with good transit um, that had always been held up to me as an example of progressive, diverse, multicultural urbanism. If that city was so divided between, you know, the kind of uh, the urban advantaged elite, if you will, and the suburban group or the exurban group who felt like they were falling further and further behind and elected Rob Ford, then I, I sort of thought this re urban revival, this back to the city movement was creating a set of intended or unintended consequences that I should delve into. And that's that's really when I began to dig in and, and look at, you know, what I guess people are now calling the dark side of the urban revival. Right. That backlash seemed to me over the years to be a lot of people saying, well, hey, you've captured the upside. Um, but what about the the side impacts of this? You know, you get into that in your book. I think one of the striking things was the, this notion that as our cities become more diverse, they're tending to also become more economically segregated. Can you talk a little bit about that? What, what causes that? Sure, sure. And I, I think it was really a process of discovery for me. So you think about the first things that came to mind in the backlash to my work or in the field of urbanism generally. The first thing that came was, oh, my God, our cities are becoming gentrified and that's displacing people. You know, and I spent a whole chapter dealing with the very extensive academic literature on gentrification, dealing with Lance Freeman's work and the work of many other people. And 
gentrification is not the big issue. Yes, in certain neighborhoods, in certain superstar cities, in parts of Manhattan, in parts of London, in parts of Washington, D.C., but there still is very little evidence that gentrification directly displaces poor people. Gentrification tends to take place in old industrial warehouse neighborhoods or in white working class neighborhoods. Uh, Now, in the most recent research, renters do pay a slightly more price. Homeowners tend to do all right. The problem is that that housing prices have risen and that that indirectly affects many more people. And the second big backlash was, oh my God, housing prices are rising. And I devote a whole chapter to this. They're rising so much that the creative class and the creatives are being pushed out of cities like New York and London. Again, that may be true in certain neighborhoods, in you know very expensive parts of New York or London or San Francisco. But on balance, as far as I can look at the research, New York and London and Los Angeles and San Francisco are as creative or more than they've ever been. Now, that may have moved to parts of Brooklyn or the outer boroughs, or it may have migrated around the city. But the real problem, Chuck, that you just nailed, that that after really looking at this for a couple of years, really is is this rise in inequality and even more importantly, the rise in what I would call spatial inequality or economic segregation and the geographic isolation that comes with it. So two things. One, according to my own research, but the even much better research of my colleague at the University of Toronto, Nate Baum-Snow, a leading younger urban economist – you know, one of the main factors in inequality is not just returns to capital. It's not just technology and automation. It's not just globalization. It's being in an urban area. And an inequality scales with size. So the bigger and denser a metropolitan area gets, the more unequal it tends to get. And then the, the second thing that I, I began to look at was learning really a lot from the research of urban sociologists like Robert Sampson at Harvard and Pat Sharkey at NYU who've become very close friends, you know, I really realized that I was looking at what propels economic growth, concentrated advantage, clustering of talent, innovation, technology. They were looking at concentrated disadvantage. And the more we compared our findings, the more we saw that we had flip sides of the same coin, you know, and the same clustering of economic advantage and talent and technology and knowledge that that many people like Michael Porter and myself and Ed Glazer and Bruce Katz at Brookings had seen as a driver of economic growth. The flip side of that is that it was also leaving many people behind. I call it winner-take-all urbanism and and causing a, a new pattern of concentrated disadvantage. So I, I began to look very closely at economic segregation and spatial inequality, and I came to two or three key findings. One, that we really were had embarked over the period post-rise of the creative class. So the period from 2000 to now is the period when the urban revival hits full steam. Uh, where we see this massive movement of affluent people, the global super rich, techies, knowledge workers, gentrifiers back to cities. And and so we get the rise of a small group of winner-take-all cities like London and New York and San Francisco and L.A. and Washington and Boston. And an increasing spatial inequality between those cities and everywhere else. And and part of that is the backlash which brought Trump to office and the rise of populism around the world. The second part is that even in the winter cities, you see the rise of economic segmentation across income between rich and poor, by education, highly educated people, college grads and people with advanced degrees and people who didn't attend college and by virtue of occupation, knowledge workers versus blue collar workers versus blue collar service workers. 
So again, when we looked at the research, what we saw quite troublingly and distressingly, and that's why I say this is the basic contradiction that lies at the heart of urbanism and maybe, well, the basic fundamental contradiction of capitalism, you know, where do you see inequality the worst? Where do you see economic segregation the worst? Income inequality, economic inequality, and economic segregation are closely associated. They're, they're worse in larger metros, denser metros, more knowledge-intensive metros, more technology-based metros, more diverse metros, and more liberal and progressive metros. So, so what it suggests to me is the great contradiction we have is, is that our most successful metropolitan areas, the places that have the most innovation, the most wealth generation, the highest levels of productivity, the most density, the most urbanism, the most diversity, and the most progressivism are also the most divided. And, and that's because, as I say in the book, this clustering force that Jane Jacobs identified as the basic motor force of capitalism, the basic engine of economic progress – is Janus-faced. It's two-sided. On the one hand, it generates many good things. On the other hand, it carves these deep, deep divides in our society and generates a, a very potent political backlash, which threatens really to cut off our engine of progress itself. One of the things that I've heard in response to the, the winner-take-all economy, as you, as you describe it, comes from essentially people I think you'd include in the creative class who have said to people in the, you know, the service workers and what have you, that as a philosophy, you should essentially become more educated. Like the way to get ahead today is education to become more educated. You know, my wife is a reporter with, with public radio and she says this all the time. We, we need to stop, you know, encouraging kids to go into uh, tech skills and what have you and, and get them to liberal arts colleges. Let me get your reaction to that. Cause I, I hear that as saying you just need to be more like us. And it seems like there's something maybe deeper going on there. Do you, do you think that the idea that education is, is the answer is a viable strategy here for broader prosperity? I, I, I don't want to impugn it. I, I mean, I, I have a PhD. Right. <laughs> um, education has certainly paid off in my life. But the, the thing I know is that I always hated school. I, I like to learn, but I hated formal education. I cut as many classes as I could. I hated even college, even though I like to learn. I didn't go to school. I didn't take many classes in graduate school, but I love to learn. I love being in a library. I like discovering things. I like doing research. I liked observing cities, the things that, that I really cared about and was passionate about. But the, one of the reasons I undertook the research that led to rise of the creative class is I thought this education focus was limited. And I wanted a metric based on not what people learn in school, but what people do. So that's why I came to this conclusion that I wanted to look at people who work in blue-collar occupations, routine service occupations, and these knowledge and creative occupations. And, you know, although nine in ten people with a college degree are members of the creative class, 40% of the members of the creative class don't hold a college degree. And that includes people who do lots of things in arts and music and technology, but it also includes people like Bill Gates or Steve Jobs who built great entrepreneurial businesses. So the, the, the other and bigger point I want to make in the new urban – I try to make in the new urban crisis is that the two solutions we, we tend to gravitate to, to overcome inequality and to rebuild our middle class, which are educate people out of routine service jobs and educate them out of blue-collar jobs or bring back you know the Trump solution, bring back more blue-collar jobs to America are maybe necessary but they're insufficient, you know. 20% of Americans do blue-collar work. 5% of us work in factories. Just 5% of Americans, a daunting figure, work in factories. 
And and only a third of us do knowledge work. So add those two up and you get 55% of the workforce. Let's say we could increase that number by 10%. We still have today 45% of our workforce in the United States who do low-wage, low-skill routine service jobs. They wait on us in restaurants. They prepare our food. uh, They sell us things in retail shops. They man our offices. They do clerical work. They take care of our kids or aging parents. They're home health care aides. Those jobs, you know, pay twenty or thirty thousand dollars a year. A blue collar job pays forty five thousand a year, and a creative class job probably pays eighty five or ninety thousand a year on average. And what's even worse is when we when we take the amount of money people have left over from housing, you know, while creative class people may have as much as seventy five or eighty thousand left over, these service people have ten thousand or fifteen thousand at most left over. They can't make ends meet. So so I think the thing I say in the book is one of the things we've got to do if we want to rebuild the middle class in America is make those service jobs better jobs. We need higher minimum wages, but we also need to invest in, in those workers and invest in those jobs um, and make them better jobs. And what I talk about is how in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, we did the same for manufacturing work. You know, my, my dad always told me a story that when he took a job. My dad only had a seventh grade education. He worked in a factory. He took a job in 1934 at the height of the Great Depression to help his family make ends meet. It took nine people in my dad's family, my grandfather, my grandmother, him and his six siblings to make a living wage. After the war, he came back. You know, He served his time. He stormed the beaches at Normandy and he said, Rich, I had a good job in the same factory doing the same work. And I could you know, get married. I could buy a home. I could put you two boys through Catholic school, parochial school, put you through two boys, his two sons, myself and my brother Robert, through college and university. He said, well, those jobs became better jobs. We had a union movement. We gave people the right to bargain collectively. We had a new deal. and We kind of decided as a society that we needed a middle class so that people who, who made cars could buy cars. And so we can do the same thing with service work and the research that's been done shows that when you pay service workers better, when you engage them in teamwork, when you involve them in quality, when you when you capture their talent and innovation, when you it, make them have an internal career ladder, when, when they can provide customer service, better customer service, the productivity of that company goes up and the profit of that company goes up. A woman a researcher at MIT calls it the good job strategy. So I think we can do it, but I think that's the way forward. It's not education is good for some people, but for forty five percent of us, sixty five million Americans who are trapped in low wage precarious service work, we just gotta make their work better, middle class family supporting work. I feel like your blue collar background you, you and I both grew up my dad worked at the paper mill for quite a while and your dad worked at uh, manufacturing. I I feel like that blue collar aspect gave you a, a very unique take on the Trump phenomenon and, and just populism in general. I, I want to ask you, kind of drilling deeper into this winner-take-all issue, part of the critique, part of the critique that led to, to Trump in a sense, is that globalization has actually hurt our local resiliency. You know, we don't, we don't make things anymore. We don't have those kind of jobs. We need to uh, do protectionism or what have you to get that kind of stuff back. How would you specifically respond to, to that critique? This is the first time that I know of in American history. I'm a pretty good scholar of American history and certainly since the Civil War, but but even more so. I don't want to say that we're just divided, that America looks like it's on the backward side of history. You know, uh, we got Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. We had FDR during the Great Depression and World War II. 
And, and we never questioned our ability to innovate, our ability to trade, our ability to be a productive country, our ability to create new technologies and new startups. Now, for the first time, what really worries me with the Trumpian backlash is we're throwing the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. You know, we're the most prosperous, the most productive, the most innovative, the wealthiest country on the face of the earth. And here are people saying, you know, uh, well, the Chinese – the Chinese are still a developing economy, are taking our jobs. Well, Mexico, you know, Mexico is, is not even close to us in level of development or, or blaming immigrants. I mean, immigrants, <laughs> since day one in this country, have driven the preponderance of our innovation. I mean, going back to Andrew Carnegie and Steel, you know, a third to 50 percent of our high tech businesses in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area were founded by an immigrant. America would not be a productive, innovative, entrepreneurial nation if it wasn't open to immigrants. So this backlash and the election of Trump and the rise of this kind of close the borders economic nationalism is terrifying to me. And I, I don't think it's motivated so much by economic anxiety. And, you know, there's very, very good research on this now by lots of people. It really is a cultural backlash and a racist backlash. It is largely white working class men who feel for some reason they didn't get what's entitled to them. Uh, they want to restore their own patriarchal position. They want to restore what they think of as traditional American family values. They don't like the fact that our cities are diverse polyglots of economically propulsive people. That's really what we have on our hands. And then on the left, you know, and that's on the right, on the left, we have this kind of nimbyism, this not in my backyard syndrome. Um, you know, please, I have a lovely neighborhood that I live in in San Francisco or Boston or New York. Please, you can't damage it. We can't increase density. And, and you know, density is not just important to provide more affordable housing. Of course it is. But really density and transit are the things that allow our metropolitan areas to scale and to grow and to become more productive and become more innovative. So in the book, I call them, they're not only NIMBYs, they're, I call them the new urban Luddites. They're like the skilled artisans in England who smashed the machines that they believe threatened their livelihood, even though those machines would bring much greater productivity to nations like the United Kingdom and the United States and the world. So look, I, I think this is the big – this is what I think is the real contradiction that lies at the heart of the new urban crisis. As we've become more clustered, more innovative, more knowledge-based, more urban, we not only become more divided, we set a motion of backlash which threatens all of those things, which are really our only path to the future. And, and that's why I say in the book, you know, we have to make urbanism work for us, not against us. We have to move from winner-take-all urbanism to a more inclusive prosperity, what I call urbanism for all. But But – I do think this is a real battle, and I, and I don't think the kind of white working class Trump voter is going to come on board. I don't think they're going to be magically convinced that this urban revolution is for them. I think the service workers, the multi-ethnic, multiracial, largely female urban service workers could come on board. Uh, but I think our country is badly divided, and, and that's that's kind of the end note of the book is is how do you cope with a country that is as divided as it ever was and certainly – you know, the only the only time that looks like comparable in terms of our division was the Civil War, a country that is just divided between two very different approaches to the way people want to live and the way people want to work. In a very coarse sense, if we look back at thousands of years of, of urban history, cities used to be essentially affluent people surrounded by poor people. 
And after World War II, after the Depression, we had this massive expenditure of resources that kind of inverted that. And in the last, I can't remember what the book was, The Great Inversion. There was a book recently that talked about, you know, the fact that essentially things are returning to a, a normal state. You describe this, though, not as an inversion. You describe it as a patchwork. I think patchwork metropolis is the word you used. Can you talk a little bit about what the patchwork metropolis is? After the Depression and after the war, uh, we wanted to build a a society that could create and, and house the middle class. We didn't want to fall back into the pattern we saw in the 20s leading up to the Great Depression. So I mentioned that one thing we undertook was to make manufacturing work, family supporting work, and we developed a new growth model, which worked perfectly. In order to fuel that economy, we enabled through massive subsidies, the mortgage interest tax deduction, subsidies for federal highways, infrastructure subsidies, uh, suburbanization. And suburbanization allowed people like my dad, who never thought he would be a homeowner, to move 10 or 15 minutes away from Newark, New Jersey, where he grew up, an easy commute to the factory. Uh, and you could put up a very simple, very small, you know, 1,200 square foot frame house uh, that was very cheap to construct. And when my dad bought that house, like millions upon millions of other Americans, he thought he was in the American dream. Uh, but he also filled it up with all sorts of consumer durables, washing machines, refrigerators, television sets, cars coming off the assembly line. So it was the perfect strategy for building a middle class and driving the economy. And and what we saw, you know, with the old urban crisis then was the movement of jobs and factories and the middle class out of cities into the suburbs. So the middle class left the cities and we had the the classic hole in the donut. The book you mentioned is a, is a great book by um Alan Ehrenholt uh called the called exactly what you said the great inversion. The great inversion. And, Al, yeah. and Alan argued uh I think very eloquently and, and, and largely correctly that we were seeing an inversion of that pattern, that wealthy people, uh, for a whole variety of reasons, they wanted to be near the job market, the good jobs in media, finance, technology now increasingly moving back to cities from the places like the office parks and nerd stands of Silicon Valley, like back to downtown San Francisco, back to downtown New York. So they wanted to be close to jobs and opportunity. They want less commutes. They want great amenities for their kids and they can afford private schools or they can use charter schools. Uh, they want vibrancy. They want more free time. They don't want to commute as much. But, but what I say in the book is when we look at this data very closely, it's not quite either of those things. It's not like all the rich people live in the city and all the poor people in the suburb, although poverty has grown immensely in the suburbs. And there's still very rich neighborhoods in the suburbs, and there are a lot of poor neighborhoods in the city. I say what we really have is a patchwork, a patchwork where you have areas of concentrated advantage around the urban core, lots of gentrification. You have lots of advantage people moving their subway and transit lines where they can get into the city more easily. But you also have, you know, the richest neighborhoods, the most affluent neighborhoods in America are still in the suburbs, places like Greenwich, Connecticut, um, the suburbs of Silicon Valley, the suburbs outside of Los Angeles. I could go on, San Diego. I mean, this is where the richest people in the United States still live. And the most expensive housing still is. And then stretching out into the suburbs, you have these areas of concentrated advantage. But both in the city and in the suburbs, you have these areas of also concentrated disadvantage. Now, I talk about how in some places there's more rich people in the city and some places there's more rich people in the suburbs. And in some places there's wedges of affluence. In some places there's islands and archipelagos. But the one thing that really strikes me is if the old urban crisis was about the 
demise of the middle class in the city. The new urban crisis is about the demise of the middle class and even more so the evisceration of middle class neighborhoods across both city and suburb. So when I look at the data, you know, in 1970, more than two thirds, roughly 70 percent of Americans lived in middle class neighborhoods. Now less than 40 percent of us do. In 209 of the 223 metropolitan areas that the Pew Research Center has tracked, um, between 2000 and 2014, the middle class has declined. So I really see one of the cornerstones of the new urban crisis, and whether you're in New York or San Francisco, it's worse. Larger, denser, more knowledge-based cities, more technology-based cities have seen the biggest declines in the middle class and in middle class neighborhoods. But you can be in Detroit or Cleveland or Atlanta or Houston in the Sun Belt. And they've also seen significant declines in their middle class and middle class neighborhoods. So this this pulling apart of America, not only in terms of upper class and lower class knowledge workers and service workers, but this pulling apart of America based on where we live, you know, people living in advantaged neighborhoods in the urban core, advantaged neighborhoods in the suburbs, or many more of us living in increasingly disadvantaged and disconnected neighborhoods. I think that's really the, the, the centerpiece of the new urban crisis and kind of the big, big crisis and contradiction confronting American society today. One of the recommendations you make in the book is that we need to better connect our cities and our suburbs as a way to essentially transform the suburbs over time. And you, you talk a lot about transportation investments being a vehicle for this. I want to ask you about these areas of concentrated advantage and really the NIMBY effect. When we fund transportation from a federal level or from not at the, at the ground level, do we allow those NIMBY neighborhoods to essentially avoid confronting the crisis that they're creating for themselves? Do we, do we allow the suburbs to essentially become a feeding area for cheap labor as opposed to having a, a back and forth economic exchange that actually benefits some of the areas that are not in those concentrated advantage places today? Well, you know, I, I do talk in the book about overcoming nimbyism, and, and, and I do agree, and that's why I say they're not only nimbys, they're the new urban Luddites, because it's, it's not just limiting housing development. They're really limiting the density we need for, for our cities and metropolitan areas to scale. And, and they have to scale. They have to increase housing. We have to become denser because that's what makes us more innovative and more creative and more productive. I also want to be careful, again, not to throw – this is why this is so complex and so nuanced. And the simple memes we have, city versus suburb, NIMBY versus not, densification versus not, don't really capture the reality of our very complicated, nuanced, and contradictory urban life. Yeah, we do not want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because, you know, it, we, these neighborhoods like Soho or Chelsea, the meatpacking district in New York, the South of Mission district in San Francisco, these mixed use, formerly industrial, low rise, mid rise, but dense neighborhoods are really where artists want to be, art galleries want to be. Tech companies want to be, technology people want to be, rich people want to be, restaurants want to be because they're really spectacular and special neighborhoods and we don't have a lot of them. So we don't want to turn these spectacular urban neighborhoods 
that are in such scarce supply into, you know, condo canyons. We don't want to make them look like the center of Hong Kong. I love, I love Hong Kong. I'm not trying to impugn Hong Kong, but you know, I talk about we don't want to fill up these neighborhoods with the equivalent of vertical sprawl, where instead of being, you know, Jane Jacobs once said, density in the absence of pedestrian scale can be a very dangerous thing. And we don't want people inside towers, you know, essentially spending their life in the food court, going to their office because it's just too hard to get out in the street. It's the street and the street level activity and the mixing and mingling and collisions that go on there that is so important. So so the book really says we've got to be really careful about this. And we have to – when we think about land use, we don't want to massively deregulate land use like some of the – well-intentioned, a very bright marketer, but to say, we want to really think about how to reform our land use laws and restrictions, zoning and building codes, so we optimize this. So yes, we do need more density. And then, and then, of course, I think the other piece of it is we need just really finally to stop subsidizing roads. We have to implement congestion charges so that people pay market-based pricing of the road. So people pay to use the road. They pay the real cost of using the road. And we need to invest in transit and improving, you know, in our in our cities that have transit, like New York, it's falling apart. And when I visit New York, people tell me they live in commuter hell because trains are derailing, things aren't working, subways are failing, trains are, you know, not working. But we need to connect our vibrant hubs of ac- economic activity in and around the core, around research institutions, knowledge hubs. We need to connect them to the outlying areas so that we can increase the labor market and the labor shed. So one of the things we need to really think about in this country is to how do we invest in transit to pull our suburbs and our cities closer together to make them more unified. But also, you know, if we really want to help the Detroits and Clevelands and Akrons and Dayton's and all of those Midwestern Rust Belt towns that have had fallen on hard times, we can connect them via high-speed rail to economic hubs that are really working and thriving. And because those economic hubs, Toronto, Chicago, New York, Washington, D.C., have such high housing prices, if people had the ability to take high-speed rail and to commute even on an irregular basis, maybe not a daily basis, but you know, if you shorten that distance between Detroit and Chicago or even Detroit and Toronto, and people could, could – or Buffalo and Toronto would be another example, Pittsburgh and Washington, D.C., then you could you could end up with places that are much more connected to one another and bigger markets and bigger labor markets and bigger labor sheds uh, so that you would have the opportunity to connect places and actually not only grow up but out in a much more powerful and useful way. This morning, I actually read an article about Washington, D.C. and a lament from policymakers there that there's no affordable housing. I look over at the map and I see Baltimore – just a short skip away. Can you explain Baltimore? How can Baltimore exist uh, where you literally have neighborhoods that are being torn down because they're not occupiable or they're not occupied? Yet there's this huge, you know, housing shortfall on really on both sides of it. Well, I mean, I mean, I lived in Washington D.C. for three years, and and one of the things we did one of our really probably our inaugural book launch for this book there and. You know, I shared the stage with Mayor Bowser, and Mayor Bowser has really committed herself, having read the book, 
having talked a bit, she's really committed herself to inclusive prosperity. And her strategy for Washington, D.C. is to ensure that increasingly as the district and the region develops, it doesn't create a winner-take-all prosperity, but more inclusive prosperity. And I hope to work on that with her and others more closely. So I think Washington, D.C. is one of the places that get it. And, and that gives me optimism that some of these great superstar cities and knowledge hubs because there is rich and poor people, because there's socioeconomic diversity, because people are concerned that they will move towards inclusive prosperity. But if you look at Washington, D.C. is just one example, close by to Baltimore. I mean, there's a couple things going on. One, the transit connection isn't good enough. So if there was real high-speed rail, and there are many people, by the way, there are many young people and creatives who commute from Baltimore to Washington, D.C., but the transit connection isn't good enough. And of course, the traffic is just miserable. But if there was real high-speed rail at, at a regular offing between Baltimore and Washington, D.C., that would help. But that's not the whole story. The other part of the story is race. And I quote the research of Robert Sampson in the book that says, you know, when you really look at where gentrification happens, and I mentioned this earlier, it happens in industrial areas, industrial zones where very few people lived, which were working zones like Chelsea and the Meatpacking District and the Brooklyn Waterfront. We can go on. Every city has these Union Market, uh, south of Union in, in Seattle. But it also tends to happen in white working class neighborhoods. In majority black neighborhoods, we all have exceptions that prove this rule. There's Harlem and there's Bedford-Stuyvesant, but they're very few and far between. Gentrification tends and urban upgrading tends not to happen in majority black neighborhoods and Baltimore is a majority black city. So there are racial factors at work. That said, the East Coast corridor, and I would say this is the corridor from Boston to New York through Philadelphia and Baltimore and Washington, D.C., that over time, certainly as that rail service improves and high speed or rail does get to be at higher speed, I think we will see Baltimore begin to come back. I mean, even my own data suggests that Baltimore now, the metro area, if you look at its creative economy, its innovation economy, it's it's one of the 20 or 25 metros that are making it, even though it still has horrific divides and areas of horrific poverty. Even Newark now, we're beginning to see the inklings of an urban revival in, in Newark, in and around the center and of course, Philadelphia might be like the base case of a city that was at one time like Baltimore. You know, I just did an event there and it was probably one of the most vibrant urban cores I've ever seen, you know, with people teeming. But of course, as that happens, those cities become more divided uh, and you have concentrated poverty and concentrated disadvantage literally side by side juxtaposed to concentrated advantage. So I think the even bigger problem, to be quite frank, is, is what do you do with the cities in the Rust Belt? What do you do in the cities in the plain states? What do you do for the sunbelt cities of sprawl that don't have – what do you do for the rural places in this country that have seen the factories move away? At least the Baltimores and even the Newarks with all the struggles in front of them have very good, excellent universities, superb universities. They, they are on transit links. They're part of big megalopolitan areas. I think the bigger problem is what are the places that are disconnected, that are outlying, that don't have great universities, that are in parts of the country – that are, are not growing around knowledge-based industries. That seems to be the even bigger problem than the Baltimores of the world. I want to follow up on that then, because what do you do? I've read my Jane Jacobs, you know, The Economy of Cities, she talks about import replacement as a viable strategy. Is, is that not a viable strategy today? Is that in the creative class world we live in, I'm buying into it. I mean, I agree with you that we are that kind of an economy is the old-fashioned idea of import replacement that she describes so eloquently, is that just outdated now? 
It's a hard question. You know, I really defer to the work of Tim Wojan and Dave McGranigan at the U.S. Department of Agriculture on this, who've really looked at this in some detail. What they estimate is about half, maybe a little more than half of rural places are doing fine and have kind of vibrant creative economies. They're places that either have pretty good universities or colleges. They're kind of a college town economy, a knowledge economy. Or they have lots and lots of amenities. You know, you think of pieces in in Wyoming like this or Montana, uh, but there are many others in upstate New York and other places, parts of Delaware uh, that have coastlines. They have wonderful amenities that people want to be near or or they're in the outer commuting shed of a vibrant metro. And here an example that comes to mind is the area around Hudson and New York on the Hudson River, where lots of people who no longer want to pay Manhattan or Brooklyn prices are saying, the hell with that. I'll move out to Hudson and I'll take the train or I'll commute in when I need to be in Manhattan or in New York City. But about half the other places are disconnected. And the hard part is it's really, really difficult to think about what those places can do. They're not going to be part of a branch plant economy. They're not going to bring back manufacturing. Agriculture has been routinized and automated and, and around big, giant factory farms. So so it's really hard to think about what those places that are disconnected can do. And I think in the book, I talk about this. We need a combination of people-based policies, which enable people to move and relocate from those areas to areas of more economic violence vibrancy. And we also need place-based policies. And I guess the the one place-based policy that I think might be the most effective is a place-based policy that uses infrastructure and rail infrastructure and high-speed rail infrastructure to connect some of those places better, uh, knit them back together into a more urbanized fabric. There's no easy answers. And in fact, you know, the next major essay I'm going to write is going to be on what we can do to really begin to grapple with the problem of spatial inequality across America's economic geography. In particular, what do we do with the smaller metros, the exurban places, the rural places? How do we parse that problem? And, and how do we help the places that we can help? And what do we do if there are places that are, that are more difficult to help? How do we help the people that live in those places um, to get on with their lives? I know that you rewrote part of your book after the election in November. In The New Urban Crisis, you actually talk about the concept of devolution, of of giving local governments more power. It's something that at Strong Towns we talk about a lot. I got to tell you, the feedback that we get is often, okay, great, that might work well for New York, it might work well for San Francisco, but... Boy, those people in Alabama and Mississippi, they're just, they're just waiting to bring back segregated drinking fountains. You know, how, how could you, Chuck, in good conscience, advocate devolution of power? How would you respond to that critique? Well, it's, it's funny. Um, that's the second major essay I'm writing, and in fact, writing it now. And I'm dealing with the same criticism. And by the way, I don't discount it. And on Twitter, Boy, I've been having some of the best backs and forth because there's no easy answer here. This is this is not black and white. This is the grayest of gray areas. So let's try to think about this logically and, and rationally and, and take some emotion out of it. First of all, Donald Trump is the president of the most powerful nation on earth. That to me is the single most terrifying fact of my life. And what it suggests to me is the office of the presidency has far too much power. In Canada, if Donald Trump was president, people wouldn't worry as much. The reason they wouldn't worry much is, of course, he wouldn't have his finger on the nuclear codes, but also because the the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, who's a wonderful guy, doesn't have nearly as much power as Donald Trump, that the provinces in Canada 
are actually responsible for health care. They're responsible for disaster assistance. They're almost like mini nations. And the reason that I think developed is because there was this linguistic thing with the French speaking people in Quebec who wanted to live their lives and the Anglos in Ontario and the other provinces. So the first, the first order problem to me is that this nation state in the United States, an imperial presidency, has far, far, far too much power. Um, we vested too much power in a nation of 350 million plus people, you know, thousands of municipalities, 50 states. We vested far too much power in one office and one person. So it makes sense that we move to a system that distributes power better. Um, the second thing that I think we have to realize is that our country is terribly divided, as divided as any time as perhaps the Civil War. If you look at that electoral map, blue America, progressive America, urban America is losing. Yes, you might say that Mrs. Clinton won more votes, but Donald Trump is the president and the electoral college in reality does exist. And if I look at the course of my life, you know, if I, I take the 60s and 70s out of the mix, look at my modern life since I graduated college, we had Ronald Reagan, we had George Bush Sr., then we had the Clinton administration, then we had George Bush Jr., then we had President Obama, now we have Trump. It's not like progressive America is winning. If I look at the data, and I do, from Gallup and from others, you know, I've been writing for a decade on how America is becoming more conservative. Redder, even in the face of a demographic shift, which should make us more liberal and more progressive. There, there are all sorts of reasons that I don't really want to go into now about this. The political scientists understand much better than I do. But, but basically, we are on the losing side of this debate. And Trump's election uh, should really help people understand this. And, you know, people – my wife said this the day after the election. We had an election party here in Toronto and, you know, we didn't sleep and we were crying. And my wife said, you know, imagine, Richard, if we feel this badly that Mrs. Clinton, our candidate, didn't win. Imagine how people, you know, who are living in much more isolated parts of the United States, they have much less advantages, they're struggling to make ends meet. If Mrs. Clinton won and their person, Donald Trump, had been defeated, how angry and upset they would be. And, you know, we have all the economic – people like us have all the economic advantages. So I think we, we have to understand that we are divided. Well, how do we overcome that? We can try to impose our view on them, but we're losing. And if you look at the states, you know, and I, I want to draw a big line, you know, uh, things like civil rights and gay rights and women's rights are the things that meet the most to me. That's what made me an urbanist. But we're losing. You know, if you go to those places, Mississippi and Alabama, you can't find a woman's reproductive health provider. I've done the research on it. I published it at CB Lab. They don't exist anymore. Those places are, are trying to go back to the 19th century. So in the short run, I think we have to protect our urban sanctuaries, you know, not just sanctuary cities that I want a safe place where I can go and live my life. And I don't want the federal government to remove those rights. And I don't want a state government, if I'm in Austin, Texas, or if I'm in a blue city in a red state, I don't want that the state government, I'm in my greater Miami in Florida. If I'm in Phoenix or Tucson in Arizona, I could go on. I don't want my red state legislature, my conservative state legislature to take those rights away. So I think as a, a strategy for coping with this, we need a mutual coexistence strategy. One, one I do believe a devolution of power and by this, I don't mean simply municipal empowerment. I mean really thinking about governance, that, that the scale of the problem 
equates to the level of governance. So there are many things that have to be done at a national level. There are certain things that need to be done at a state level. There are certain things that need to be done at a metropolitan level, uh, like transit and transport. Uh, there are certain things that need to be done at a municipal level. There are certain things that we can do best at the neighborhood level. And, and I look at corporate governance, and we know that the most productive factories and the most productive corporations are the ones that put power in the hands of the workers. So we need to put power in the hands and authority in the hands of the people who can run our economy best. For Alice Rivlin, Jane Jacobs, they've said this for decades. Uh, the best way to run a, and build a productive, innovative economy is to give people who build that economy, local leaders, mayors, communities, neighborhoods, the power. Thirdly, we know that there is no one-size-fits-all urban policy, that the problems of New York and San Francisco are so different than the problems of Detroit and Cleveland, which are so different than the problems of Atlanta and Houston, which are different still than the problems of Dayton and Akron and Youngstown and Scranton, and I could go on, that, that really we need different approaches. So, so for all those reasons, I think we, we have to entertain – I don't have the perfect answer. I'm going to be writing more on this. We have to have a conversation about how to devolve power in our country. Is it easy? Are there contradictions? Are there things we have to be very careful about? Do we, do we want to give way on basic civil rights? No, but we have to figure out a way to protect the advances and protect our cities. And the other thing that worries me, of course, in addition to all of that, is, is I think you, you said this, well, New York will be okay. Uh, but Mississippi and Alabama, but but in fact, devolving power without developing strategies for redistribution may well mean that spatial inequality increases. So one thing we could think about is how do we develop networks of cities? How do we work with cities collectively so that cities can actually be part of a process of redistributing wealth? Ben Barber, the late Ben Barber, before he died, when we had our last conversation, which fortunately we videotaped and we can, I can share, I have shared at City Lab. Uh, ben said, you know, when Donald Trump was attacking sanctuary cities, there was a movement among his parliament of mayors, global parliament of mayors, global cities to actually work to help fund American sanctuary cities that would be defunded. So I, I think what the devolution is something we need to consider. Um, it's something that we're going to need to do to protect ourselves, but we need to do it carefully. The book is called The New Urban Crisis. I highly recommend it. I enjoyed it, and I think you will too. Richard Florida, thanks for taking the time. It's so great to talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. I've, I've long admired your work and find a lot of common cause in it. So thank you for sharing. And one, one last thing, Chuck, thank you too. I think that this book doesn't – I want to say this. It doesn't have all the answers. It really is trying to kick off a conversation about how we move from winner-take-all urbanism to urbanism for all. How do we build a narrative and a movement towards inclusive prosperity? But all the thorny things we talked about, you know, urbanism is – is not black and white. It is very gray. It's filled with contradictions. And even the strategies we've talked about from how do we get to affordable housing, how do we do transit, and particularly how do we build governance models that are more effective, this is not something that I can impose, that I have enough knowledge or you know experience. This really has to come out of a conversation. And my hope is that this book and our conversation helps to spur that dialogue out of which, you know, carrying on the work of Jane Jacobs and the other great urbanists that have come before us, 
that we can really move towards building you know, a fuller and fairer, more diverse, more inclusive, and a better kind of urbanism. So that that's what I hope this book can help do. I really think that that's a core of why I find your work inspiring. We tell people at Strong Towns all the time, you know, if you're looking for a silver bullet solution, if someone comes up with that, they're, they're either a fool or a snake oil salesman, because there there is no such thing, right? No, and it really is about empowering places. You know, Jane said this she said this to me when I asked her, you know, I said, Jane, what could we do to rebuild at, in the wake of 9-11? What could we do to rebuild lower Manhattan? What should we do? What would you do? And she said, you asked the wrong question. It's what would the people who live there do? What would the people who work there do? What would the shop owners do? You need to really tap that intelligence and capability of neighborhood residents. So that's why I think this move towards devolution and this move towards local empowerment is so critical because we have to gain those inputs, but we have to do it carefully. And again, just to what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions, but we know that the best solutions come from people working together, talking together, collaborating with another, people who care deeply about their own communities and want to build, you know, to take the title of your own program, their own strong towns. And that is not a partisan issue. Trump voters and Clinton voters, Red America and Blue America all want a better, stronger town. And, you know, when you go talk to the mayors of those towns, they don't look nearly as ideologically disparate. You know, I, I always say I can't tell who's a Democrat and who's a Republican, who's a liberal or conservative mayor. I think in America, we have to understand if we respect people, if we say, if you want to live a more rural life or a more suburban life, and I want to live a more urban life, we all can live together and respect each other's choices. I might not agree with your choices, but I respect them. I think that alone would take away so much of the animus and so much of the hyper-partisan bull that goes on in our world and blows this stuff out of proportion. I think if we just said to people, we're going to let you live the way you want. We're not just going to be a United States of America. We're going to be United Cities and Communities of America. You get to live the way you want. We're not going to bug you. I think we could go a long way towards healing these divides, which so threaten not just our political fabric and our social fabric, but I think really threaten our economic fabric, our economic status and our standard of living in the long run. So that's why I'm so glad that you and I could have this conversation today. I think it's a really important one that all of us need to be having. I couldn't agree more. Let's keep in touch. Thanks, brother. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Hey, and thanks everybody for listening. That was fun. Keep doing what you can to build Strong Towns. We need your help. If you think the Strong Towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.